This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! From the Embassy Road Studios in the crap part of Soho, and from my somewhat echoey loft in the crap part of West Hollywood, California, Rogers, the Men in Blazers podcast. Oh, it's like the old days, Dave. Oh, you are not here, and I've got my pants off and I'm pressing my buttocks against your desk. <laughs> oh, wow, that's uh, just like the old days, Rog. Oh, where... You've got a letter about that. Don't forget about it. You've got a letter <laughs> from the people at Sony. From your lawyers. Where have you been? You've been a moving target over the past 10 days. My heart has missed you every second, but you've been everywhere. Yeah, I've been in, I've been in London, Rog. I've been over there, as you know, my, uh, my mum. And not doing so well, so I was over there. Sorry to all the GFOPs who wanted a meet-up uh, over there, just dealing with some uh, larger issues. Couldn't get my mum uh, out there to the pub. Yep. Uh, she would have loved to have been there. <laughs> you've been um, on, the, you've been on and, the conveyor belt of life, Dave. Yeah, exactly. I've been, dealing, I've been drinking deep from, the, uh, from the, a rather less pleasant side of life. Uh, I've been in San Mateo, California, uh, Rod. San Francisco, and then uh, down in Los Angeles as well now uh, on business. I'm going to be flying back later to your loving arms. Oh, highlights? Oh, a night out with Steve Parrish, Rog. Uh, an epic night out uh, with Steve Parrish. You can just say night out with Steve Parrish because every night out with Steve Parrish is an epic night out by definition. Did he bring Jonathan Benteke with him? I was disappointed that Benteke didn't come. Uh, neither of the Benteke brothers. Uh, Zaha didn't come out, uh, didn't have any of the boys out. But it was a great night. Started at the Crystal Palace offices, uh, ended up always great seeing him. Um, you know, played a little bit of golf down on the, uh, down on the Kent Coast uh, in just, just obscene Armageddon-like English weather. Hailstones hitting the back of my head so hard. I literally have bruises on my ball patch, Rog, from the hail hitting me so hard. Stop your moaning. It builds character, Dave. Oh, it did. Definitely builds character, Rog. And where were you? You were in Dortmund, Rog. I was. I was. And it was amazing. Dortmund, like a Teutonic Pittsburgh. It is. Have you been to that part of Germany before? The Ruhr? Yeah, I yeah, I went to the I went to the Ruhr during the 2006 World Cup. I was in the Ruhr a bit. Are you in Gelsenkirchen? I was in Gelsenkirchen, but I think I drove through Dortmund. I think there was some uh, sort of bizarre. I drove through some crowd of sort of bizarre mega death metal acid house loving black clad German nightclub freaks. At one point, had slightly scary incidents, but I, I don't want to judge the whole of the Ruhr just by that one incident. That, that could have just been Middle Europe, mate. That could have been any city. You've just kind of tarred them all with the same brush. But Dortmund, I mean, it is a fascinating place. It's a coal and steel town, which is trying to refashion its industrial base with black and yellow everywhere. It really is like Pittsburgh. But I've rarely come across a team that's buried itself more into a city's DNA that the insignia of Dortmund is just everywhere. And for good reason, because the team's really buzzing. It's got all this young talent that's cracking through. Emre Moore, Usama Dembele, Rafael Guerrero, yeah. and of course, Hershey, Pennsylvania's own Christian Pulisic, who I was lucky enough, Davo, to watch strolling onto the Champions League field of play with Gareth Bale, Ronaldo, Benzema on one side, and even bigger than them, refereeing icon Mark Clattenburg on the field and he just trotted on, changed the game, beat his man, drew in three defenders, drove in a cross. Andre Shirley smashed home the equaliser as if to mock and deride all Chelsea fans and, and just to watch an 18-year-old American make magic happen in such an atmosphere, Dave, in such a big game, it was really a moment of wonder. So, Rod, here's a question everybody wants to know. How good is... Christian Pulisic. <sighs> He's a magic man. I can tell. I spent a couple of days with him and his family in Dortmund. He's a lovely, humble bloke. I've rarely met anyone, anyone so focused. I mean, football is just tunnel vision for him. He is a phenomenal talent. He's still growing physically. So the, there's a lot of unknowns that surround him, to be candid. And we, we don't really know the answer to your question. Because at Dortmund, there's such competition for playing time. Dortmund have brought new players in his position, forcing 
Christian down the depth chart this summer, which was not a good sign. But he's such a fierce competitor and the challenge to take the field with Royce, Dembele, Shirley, Moore and Tenacious P all fighting for two places on the field. It's either going to make him thrive or force him to leave. And I'd bet on the former, Davo. But he is, he is just 18. I mean, his body has never played a full season of first team football. He's going to tire inevitably physically and mentally. He's going to have amazing moments. He's going to have some troughs. And the question is whether he can maintain the level of play that he's shown in the first fifth of this season. So only time is going to tell. But his foot, his mind, the two of them together, they've got unbelievable quality. Uh, I, I can tell you something lovely. His jersey is sold out in the Dortmund club shop. Dembele and Moore are more popular when you go to the stadium. Lots of jerseys uh, with their names on. But you see Pulisic's jersey everywhere. And those three young phenoms, top talent, as they say in Germany, is making that city buzz. I've got a film coming out all about Christian uh, and his rise, which will come out shortly, so stand by. But if you've got a chance to go to a game in Dortmund, I'd love to go with you, Davo. Do it, do it. It's just as advertised and more. It's passion, noise, football, beer, sausage. The only five elements in the world that are more important than air, water and fire for any discerning mm. football fan. I'd love to go with you. Oh, brilliant. Well, you had me at sausage, Rog. So what you're saying <laughs> is that Pulisic, it's, he's slotting in somewhere between Pele and Maradona and Messi and Ronaldo in terms of and maybe Cruyff in there as all-time great. Well, that, that's at least what Eric Ronaldo heard. He's, he said it. he's better than that, Dave. Honestly, I'm putting him up at Bobby Wood levels. <laughs> uh, OK, brilliant, Rog. We've got a packed show. What, a, what, what time for American soccer, Rog? We're going to discuss Swansea City's appointment of former USA boss and powerballed Bob Bradley as manager. We're going to recap last weekend's top-of-the-table clash between Spurs and Manchester City at White Hart Lane. And we're going to pour out a sip of pie-filling for Big Sam, Rog, whose one-game tenure as England manager came to a halt thanks to an <laughs> undercover newspaper sting and his entrepreneurial Oh, Davo. You know, it is shocking and surprising, but so predictable. So, so predictable. I'm going to raise up a lonely Guinness, Davo, in your absence. I'm just going to say to Bob Bradley and the Bradley family, it is an amazing time to be alive as a fan of global football from America right now. And this story makes it an even more amazing time than ever. OK, we are now just 7.38 of the way through the Premier League season. Doesn't reduce. We're going to recap all of the big headlines. Since we last podded, since we last did pod from Arsene Wenger surviving the curse of Rog, well, barely, to Bob Bradley becoming <laughs> the most important US ambassador to Britain, since John Adams in 1785, Rog. Okay, let's start with Bob Bradley. Swansea City Football Club announced Monday that Bradley would replace Francesco Guidolin as manager. Bradley becomes the first American to ever manage in the Premier League. He inherits a team that sits in 17th place with just four points from his first seven games. Roger, discuss. Before we jump on in, I'm just going to get producer JW to insert an eagle here. I needed that. I needed that. Because after years, what feels like years, Davo, of producer Lexi photoshopping Bob Bradley's big head onto every ex-manager's body and shouting, Bob Bradley for Chelsea or hashtag Bob Bradley for Villa, Bob Bradley for England. He's made it, Davo. And I'll say it's a great day for American soccer fans and the American ball community in equal measure. I think that Venn diagram... The join between the two is probably 95% of our fan base. Yeah, pretty much. No, it's amazing. Uh, the American ownership in Swansea, or, you know, the majority owners, because this uh, club has a unique ownership structure. Jason Levine, Steve Kaplan uh, came into the team uh, last year and uh, have wasted no time putting their stamp on it. Probably, you know, two of the only owners who frankly, would have the guts to put in an American manager. Because within the Premier League, 
So this has seemed so obvious to us for so long and so many people in football. Within the Premier League, it's fairly unexpected. This news was greeted in Britain. I was over there when it happened with some sort of, you know, raised eyebrows and almost confusion as to why on earth Bob Bradley would go and get this job. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenge. Anti-Americanism, anti-Baldism, both of those have a reign of terror within uh, the English football world. But it is a complicated story, Davo. It is a from the different perspectives, from the American perspective, a moment of glory. And I think, understandably, from the British, from the Welsh, from the English perspective, a incredible gamble, a huge question mark. I mean, let's just celebrate this first before we deconstruct it a little bit. Because I'll say, the appointment of Bob Bradley filled me with an unbridled joy when I found out about it. I mean, I adore Bob, I admire him, I revere him. And I'll say from a human level, his appointment as a Premier League manager is proof that tenacity and staying true to your big dream in life can be rewarded. And anyone that knows Bob is fully aware just how much how deeply he's dreamed of being a Premier League manager. He was on the shortlist at Hull briefly, I think also at Aston Villa for a moment. But he's talked, you know, while he's been in almost in exile around the footballing world, he's been so candid about how he believes there's a glass ceiling that's kept him out as an American coach from progressing in Europe. He just struck out on this unorthodox path, you know, stoically just making his way through football's fringes picking idiosyncratic challenge after idiosyncratic challenge, courageously leaving everywhere he was a little bit better off than it was before he got there. Egypt, during the revolution, a story well told where he became not just a football manager, but really an American diplomat in a fractious region, a dangerous region, so dangerous ESPN wouldn't let me go there to spend the World Cup qualifiers with him. They didn't feel it was safe for their company to be in the region, he stayed. And then Steibeck, we had him a lot on our serious show together when we did. We were really into the Tipolog, and you briefly thought about buying the rights to the Tipolog. Yeah. And, and then La Havre in French Ligue 2. I mean, the kind of odyssey Homer would appreciate. He came on our pod a couple of years ago, and he said that he felt that after his U.S. national team tenure, he said, if I'd been born outside of the U.S., if I was German, if I was Dutch, Spanish, French, you name it, there would have been opportunities to become a club coach in Europe for sure. But you can't complain. You've just got to take it as it comes. And that's what he's done in this incredible odyssey, David. You know, based on, uh, you know, sometimes the state of our relationship with ESPN, I'm kind of amazed they didn't let you go to Egypt. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> yeah, they were really keen, I seem to remember, on me covering the ISIS Football League. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, no, look, I, I, think it's, I think it's incredible. And, you know, football people I was speaking to in England, they're intrigued. They're intrigued to see, you know, a manager who has a very good reputation in football. They're intrigued to see how it plays out. I think there's some questions for how it would play out with the fans. You know, fans always want the big name. They always want, you know, someone who they sort of know they've heard of, who comes from a team that they've heard of. Um, but I think it's sort of fascinating. And the, you know, the ownership in Swansea, you know, there are American owners who get in. You know, we've talked about it on the pod before, foreign owners who come in who barely ever go to the football team. They barely ever go and see them play. They don't get involved at all. They leave, you know, the chairman. They, uh, they leave the people who've already been at the club to go and run the team. I don't think this is true of... Uh, Levine and Kaplan, who've gone in there. I think they're very hands-on. I think they're very involved. I think they're very ambitious for the club. Uh, I think they micromanage every detail. And I think it's going to be just interesting to see what goes on, how much time Bob is really given, because this is a team who've been decimated uh, over the past couple of seasons. You know, they definitely were in a place a couple of seasons ago where they were really challenging uh, for the top. They played in Europe, Rog. Uh, now sitting in 17th in a very competitive Premier League this season. It is certainly going to be a challenge. Back then, three, four years ago, Swansea were held up as a model club where their director of football ran the big picture and the coach just needed to run training. The coach could almost become dispensable because the big picture was being taken care of um, outside of his IGIS. But you're right, for American sports fans, Swansea's owners, Kaplan and Levine, 
Kaplan is the co-executive chairman of, I think, the Memphis Grizzlies in the NBA. Levine uh, is the general managing owner of DC United in MLS. And looking at it from the Swansea fan perspective, I mean, I've been trying to understand. On one hand, in America, we look at Bob, we look at a man who made no secret of the fact that he felt he got shafted by US soccer when he left. And we look at his courage, his nobility. We are thrilled for him. We are thrilled for his family the whole Bradley clan. But as familiar as his story is to American soccer fans, to British fans from through their end of the telescope and to Swansea fans in particular, the story right now is Bob Bradley who? You know, we are in trouble as a club. We are falling and we have this unknown walking in from the French second division, which has never been a big supplier of managerial talent to the top flight. A man with no Premier League pedigree entering at a time of club turbulence. And on top of that, an American. I mean, he's David Blatt in reverse with a lesser track record from a Swansea perspective. And many of the Swansea faithful are less than enamored. You can look at the club chat boards online. They're just saying, who is this man? How was he appointed? Because it's not only a wild left field gamble from a British perspective, best captured by local Swansea journalist Chris Carra on Twitter when he said, Bradley comes in, the board must be thrilled. I don't think anyone else in the city feels their enthusiasm. I mean, the owners didn't consult with the 21% of the club ownership, which is in fans' hands, and the fans' supporter trust immediately put out a press release condemning the move. His predecessor, Guidoline, was so popular because he saved them from relegation last year, and they have struggled this season. But the games they played, Leicester... Manchester City, Southampton, Chelsea, Liverpool, a brutal run, which would be a torment for any manager. So you've got this strange kind of Rashomon situation, Davo, where there's an outbreak of joy across America and American soccer fans, and it coexists with almost pitchforks being raised across Swansea as the fans who are already worried about the club's transition from a fan-first, strategic, disciplined organisation to this new unknown reality under their American owners. So this choice of Bradley, let's just say from a Swansea fan's perspective, the optics aren't great. I mean, again, if I were the American owners, I'd think, God, we've got an opportunity to build a massive American soccer brand here. It's still up for grabs, America's team, and Swansea will now be it. But for both sides, the emotions are heartfelt. He cannot have, and we're not going to know how this goes down until they start playing football on the field. He could excel. I mean, he's always been a manager who's summoned a lot out of a little Bob Bradley. Or the Bob Bradley Who Brigade, you know, they could be proven right. And we won't know until October the 15th when Bob Bradley goes up against Gulp, Arsenal and Arsene Wenger at the Emirates. It's almost what Bob Bradley is going to step out at the Emirates, David. I just hope he's given some time. He's going to need some time to impose, you know, his style of football, his training techniques, you know, his communication with the players. It's going to take some time. I just hope he's given some time. I can't believe you just said that America's team is up for grabs, Rog. You've been running a campaign for the last, I think, about, what, seven years, eight years since I met you for American's team uh, to be Everton. This is the most startling admission of your failure in that endeavour, Rog. Yeah, Dave, I'm not too big to say I have failed. Timothy Howard, <laughs> now a rapid. I've been begging everyone inside Everton that I know and love to sign Christian Pulisic. I mean, by the way, yeah. Dortmund... Never mind from a footballing sense, but as a chip to grow their brand in America, they know they have something that even Bayern Munich do not have, a phenomenal yeah. uh, branding asset. Everton currently a little bit bereft. You've got Lyndon Gooch at Sunderland, Jeff Cameron at Stoke City. Of course, the giant Bradley Guzan. Come on, Middlesbrough. Cameron Carter-Vickers at Spurs. Bit of a stretch. But, you know, Bob Bradley, watching him in his first press conference, Dave, it, it was a, it's a thing of marvel from an American perspective, to see him in a Swansea jersey with BB transferred onto the, the coach's jersey. He's become an American, finally, the 22nd different nationality to coach in the Premier League, first American ever to coach in one of the top four European leagues. He's finally shattered the old boys recycle manager network. It wasn't Steve Bruce who got the job, Mark Hughes, Neil Bloody Warnock. It's Bob Bradley. And... It's a brutal gauntlet that he's going to run. Arsenal, United, Everton, Tottenham for of Bob's first seven games. Perhaps his biggest managerial challenge of all will be to learn to coach in Welsh 
and silence the haters. Let me ask you, Devo, for him, what is success? Well, I think, number one, he's got to keep the team up this season. Um, and, look, they should be good enough. You're right. They've had a very... Uh, they've had a very tough start, but he's got to keep the team up. If this team, and he's got to keep them above water for a good part of this season, if they're in a relegation battle by Christmas, the pressures are going to be just phenomenal on him and on that team and on the ownership. So I think he's got to find his points where he can find them and lift them out of relegation zone. Frankly, he's got to hope that some of the teams around him, um, you know, continue to struggle um, so that Swansea can rise up the table. Yeah. But, you know, success success for Swansea is ultimately, over the next two to three years, challenging to get back into Europe, challenging for those Europa League spots. I, I think you've said it absolutely right. Avoiding relegation and Bob Bradley surviving the season, that is the grim truth. That is success. And it is going to be fascinating watching him handle the English press in press conferences. I mean, at the, at the US... Let's just say his charm offensive rating on FIFA, if they had one, it wouldn't be great. I mean, he's not a soundbite kind of guy. And watching that dance, it's why it's so crucial that um, he doesn't get into a run uh, of difficult results right off the bat. Because him against the English media, it's going to be a remarkable challenge. I believe in him. He is a remarkable manager he's like one of those cooks who can go into the kitchen and just take leftovers and just kind of rattle them into some unbelievable culinary delight but if his team get relegated that's a darkness on the edge of town scenario not just for american coaches but for all kind of new world coaches with big aspirations africa australia mighty gibraltar but if he does succeed Dave, my god if bob bradley succeeds what a brave new world we will be moving into as decision-makers in the Premier League will become a little less insular, a little more open-minded when it comes to evaluating coaching talent, playing talent, the American League, American players. It's an amazing. The stakes could not be higher. Starting October the 15th versus Arsenal, let your Landon Donovan to Swansea rumours start in three, two, one. <laughs> At Batogato tweeted us beautifully. He said, totally normal to be nail-biting nervous for Bob Bradley, a guy I've never met who coaches a team I care nothing about, right? Men in Blazers, you couldn't have put it better. October the 15th, I would say the whole of this country will be cheering for Bob. Godspeed. Okay, Rog, let's recap some of the stuff that's been going on on the field in the Premier League over the last couple of weeks. First of all, Spurs 2, Manchester City 0, Tottenham entered the international break as the only undefeated Premier League team after slaying Pep Guardiola's side Sunday in North London. It started in the ninth minute when Alexander Kolarov defied physics and bounced the ball off the underside of his thigh into his own net. Deli Alley added a second, latching onto a wondrous pass from Sun in the 37th minute and steering it past Claudio Bravo. Spurs are now just one point off first place City. Not much happened while we've been away, Davo. We only discovered yeah. that Pep Guardiola is mortal after all. But what a game this was, Davo, for a first versus third clash. I mean, it is rare for a battle of such moment to be played so openly, so intelligently, so positively. It was dizzyingly beautiful to watch. Yeah, Tottenham were all over them, all over them at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, the tone was set from the outset. Danny Rose driving in that sizzling cross. Kolarov, God love him, discombobulated. Almost, not by so much by Spurs play, but just by their impudence, Dave. And he whipped the ball into his own net. Too late, too late for Pep to realise that Kolarov is actually Serbian for accident waiting to happen. But you're right, Spurs didn't so much as attack City, Dave as they undermine the core of Pep's whole philosophy. I mean, they just prevented this team from building from the back. They hemmed them back into their own half. Wanyama, oh my Lord, so dominant. Just every loose ball, every rush clearance, he just seemed to be there to force it back down City's throat. And Pochettino, I just have so much respect for that man. He just believed so deeply in his midfield and his forward's ability to force City's weak point, their back line, and the still nervy Claudio Bravo to crumble under pressure. And it was remarkable to see them. And, and I think City were shocked by how bold Tottenham's tactics were because they almost seemed shocked by 
Tottenham's temerity to outrun, outmuscle, outthink, and outsuppress City uh, in terms of the space available. Yeah, there is no team in the Premier League that when they're on their game, Rog, have players who can play between the lines more than Spurs. You know, their defenders are all ball-playing. They can all play a push-up. Even their centre-backs are phenomenal, Roger, pushing up into midfield. Their midfielders get forward. Their forwards are all over the place playing between the lines. Just the movement of Sun and Ali during this game. It's just amazing, amazing to watch. Um, And when they play like this, it's just infectious. I think they've missed Danny Rose. He's had some injuries early this season. He was phenomenal on the left. You're right about Wanyama. I mean, just look, they player at Tottenham, a much better player than I thought he was coming over from Southampton, Rog. And uh, they made Man City look a little bit plodding and a little bit ordinary. And Son Heung-min was at the heart of everything. I mean, what a player he's become. He has remade the stereotype of Korean players as team-first subservient forces. I mean, he could change his name right now to Son of God and it wouldn't seem arrogant at all. And it was his pass that set up Dele Alli who finished with an emphatic call to make it 2-0. And when that ball rolled in, really the question for me was, can Spurs keep this up? Surely they're going to tire, charging all over the field. I mean, just any loose ball, pouncing upon it. I've got to say, this gambit worked for Spurs, but it was an incredibly bold bet by Pochettino, because if City broke their press, unless a team's trying this strategy against Manchester City, we'll find this out. The goals will flow for Manchester City. But in this game, City without Kevin De Bruyne, I mean, they had the, the potency of Apple without Steve Jobs. They just couldn't get out of their own half. At one, Billy One tweeted us at the final whistle, that ironic moment when you beat Pep Guardiola with a false nine and a high press. So I've got to ask you, Davo, what did this make you think about City and about Pep differently than, uh, than before the game? Well, I mean, I did think going into the game that it would be going to be interesting to see how Man City played without Kevin. Um, you know, Kevin, you know, such an interesting guy because he just doesn't have a lot of personality. But on a football team, he is this amazing controlling force who just seems to be everywhere, has this phenomenal confidence and makes everyone around him uh, look better. And you're right, it was a vacuum without him in the centre of that part for Manchester City. And look, I do think he got outcoached. You know, we had um, uh, Lars Ulrich from Metallica on the show and previewed this weekend with the Pies. And if you remember, my Pie told me, Rog, uh, that Pochettino was going to outcoach Guardiola. Uh, maybe a little thought that was put into me uh, by Lars Ulrich's uh, friend who was there, who's a massive Tottenham fan. But I sort of found it laughable, the idea that Pochettino was going to outcoach Guardiola. But I think he did get outcoached in this game. This was the intensity of a Premier League battle in a very tight, very imposing ground, White Hart Lane. And he didn't look like he'd got his players ready for that game. I don't think he'll fall into that trap again. But he just got out-intensified by that Tottenham press. And not just the press, Rog, it was just how hard they were how between the lines they were in every single part of the field. I guess my opinion still hasn't changed. I do think the Man City is the best team in the league. But what is different about this year's Premier League is that you have Arsenal and Spurs and Liverpool and potentially Man United as well. You've got four teams really, really with the competitive strength to go and challenge them all the way to the end. It's going to be an amazing season. City's start to the season has been remarkable. Six straight wins. I mean, when you look at the calibre of their opponents, let's just say Manchester United aside, I mean, those were games they should have won. This was their first true challenge, going 1-0 down. I mean, to me, it was it, the real question when they went 1-0 down was how would they respond? And they didn't have the ability to force themselves back into the game. They've now got a run of matches against Everton, Barcelona, the gritty Southampton, and United again in the League Cup. Let's just see what shape City are in after that. The bigger question is, will anyone be able to do this to City? We saw Celtic in the Champions League (laughs) midweek. I mean, run riot, run riot in like a really Brendan Rodgers fantasy uh, dream. He believed that his tactics were 
were, were a gift to the, the other lesser managers in the Premier League to follow. Celtic did it. Spurs did it. City next up against Everton. <laughs> if Everton can do it, anyone can do it. So the question is, can anyone do this to Manchester well, City? I was going to mention the Celtic game, Rog. I mean, London was a buzz uh, talking about that game the day I arrived uh, last week. And it was... But the difference in the Celtic game is every time Celtic hit them, Man City hit them back. Um, and the, the, the really strange thing in this game is you're absolutely right. When Tottenham went 1-0 up, you wanted to see the Man City response. You're waiting for them to hit back. And they were unable to go and put anything together. Uh, so really what Brendan Rodgers taught Tottenham, if he taught Pochettino anything, is don't get scored on so easily at the other end after you've hit them. Uh, and Tottenham's defence is just much tighter than Celtic's defence. And that was uh, but quite striking how confused they looked. That first goal, you know, Kolarov struggled uh, midweek against Celtic as well before this. You know, and that goal, it wasn't just Kolarov's fault. It was just the overall confusion with every single time a ball came into the box, whether it was crossed in the air from the wing, whether it was coming from just outside uh, the top of the area. They just seemed defenceless and slow against anything that was penetrating their area. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about City's bat line. I think, to me, the big question about whether anyone can do this to City really is all about the bat line uh, of City's opponents. And not everyone has a defensive line that's anchored by Alderweireld and Vertonghen, or as the Belgian media call them, Megatobi and Super Jan. The most Euro nicknames of all time. <laughs> That's only because the Belgian media can't pronounce Alderweireld either. <laughs> and then on top of that, I mean, Spurs, Wanyama charging around in a way that could only be described as Dembele-esque. And so without that sure backline, I mean, it's an incredible gamble. To, to force your, uh, your, your front men forward in such a, a, an antagonizingly vicious, waspish fashion because any opponent is going to leave themselves utterly open to cities. Make no mistake, super sharp counter-attack. And the big question for me about Spurs is can they keep up the hard-charging lifestyle for an entire campaign? Because last year we saw them wilt at the last during the run-in and this relentless pressing... It's unbelievable to watch, but my lord, it takes a toll on the players physically, mentally, especially if this Spurs team go deep in the Champions League. In this game, amazing statistic, which they put out uh, over social media because they're so proud of it. They ran collectively 118.8 kilometres on Saturday, uh, which was a league best. Impossible to maintain that. Impossible for 38 games, even though... This squad is deeper this season. This game was won with no Dembélé, no Dyer till late, no Harry Kane. I do love this Spurs team. I love the way they've tied up the core of the squad to long-term contracts. I love Pochettino, one of the most tactically astute and unbelievably low-key managers in the Premier League. We're not talking about his personality. We're not talking about his press conferences, his sound bites. We're just left to marvel at the work his players do on the field. And 17 points from their first seven games... Spurs have only done that better once, and that was their double winning season in 1960-61. It's a great week to be a Spurs fan. Surely one of their most memorable Rosh Hashanahs of all time. Happy New Year to our Mosaic listeners. The only thing uh, depressing Tottenham fans, Rog, is how well Arsenal have started the <laughs> season. Also, a last gasp, Lauren Koscielny goal that he knew absolutely nothing about and seemed to break at least... Uh, Four rules of the game that I can think of. Uh, saw Arsenal pass Burnley 1-0 Sunday at Turf Moor. Arsenal sit third, two points behind City, just one point behind Spurs. The Premier League scriptwriters not really feeling the curse of Rog this season, Rog. <sighs> yeah, you're talking about my documentary, my Inside the yeah. Mind of Arsene Wenger. I went spelunking inside his mind, Davo. <laughs> yeah, he got spelunked. Rod, he got deeply spelunked. I, I loved spelunking his mind, Dave. He's such an amazing man. I mean, we hear Arson so often at press conferences being asked to respond to like Mourinho's Trumpish threats to break his face. I mean, we don't really <laughs> ask him questions that bring the best out of him. And we forget when we listen to him that this is a man who can just speak so deeply, so richly, so wide-rangingly on such an array of topics. I mean, he is an incredible philosopher. He's a philosopher leader. Uh, I've got to say, to give him that opportunity to expound is to be honoured by his thinking. 
Uh, and the, the the film that ran last Saturday and now I think is available on NBCSports.com is, um, I've heard, Davo, from hundreds of Arsenal fans who've been diehard arson out kind of aficionados, which is a very popular and, uh, and arguably understandable uh, position to take. And they've written to me and just said, I realise watching him speak just how lucky we've been to have him at the team, to ha- to live through a, a couple of decades where Arsenal were managed by a man with such character. And, and also, so many of them saying, my God, we are going to miss this man. And I did love his quote right at the end, and it is beautiful. And it was National Poetry Day yesterday. So I tweeted it out because uh, it is a piece of poetry when Arsenal said at the end, and to me, listening to him, these are not just about football lessons that he gave us. To me, Arsenal talks about lessons for life. And he said, tenacity is a most underrated quality in life. We always speak about talent, intelligence, glamour, but tenacity is the common thing for every successful person. He is tenacious. The tributes to his 20 years on British TV were magnificent. And I do think that, you know, fans of all other teams sometimes don't understand uh, the louder segments of Arsenal's uh, fan base, of the uh, of the Arsene our fan base. He's been an amazing servant, not only to Arsenal Football Club, but he's raised the standard of play, of scouting, and of discourse in the Premier League in general. I hope he stays for a lot longer. I hope he's not crazy enough to take the England job. (laughs) Having said that, Arsenal struggled against Burnley, who are one of those smaller foes like Bournemouth and Watford, who've just transformed themselves this season into drilled, hard-to-beat irregulars like Mouhadeen in cleats, Davo. Love watching Mustafi, one of the impact signings of the season. A long missing piece in Arsenal's backline. What a quietly fantastic acclamation he's had to the English game. Arsenal haven't lost a match since he made his Premier League debut. I I proudly say this, he's another Everton youth reject like Eric Dyer, but I'm not bitter. His partnership with Koscielny, Kostafi, as Arsenal fans lovingly refer to them, it's been immense. And it was a 93rd minute goal from the... Koss, part of Kostafi, Koscielny, who uh, won them the points. Arsenal winning ugly, Dave, really ugly against incredibly hard done to Burnley. Yeah, Walcott with the muffed header goes into Oxlade-Chamberlain, who whacks it right into the arm of a surely offside Koscielny, and it goes in the back of the net. Heartbreak uh, for Burnley, Rod, who really wanted those points, but joy for Arsenal, who dominated, frankly, and deserved the win. Uh, against, as you said, a very stubborn Burnley. But three points, that's the only thing that will be remembered uh, when they take the field against Swansea after the international break. Arsenal head into the break two points behind leaders Manchester City. And I'll say, if this 21st season is to be Arsene Wenger's last, then every English journalist is decoding every single comment from every single um, Arsenal uh, official about whether Wenger will be offered a new contract or not. It will be a magical fairy tale for Arsene to win it all this season. A bit like Geppetto, the impoverished woodcarver, finding happiness at last with his puppet son Pinocchio late in life. But please don't let Burnley be relegated by just one point, David. Okay, Man United. Things getting a little catchy at Old Trafford, Rog, after a 1 1 draw for the team with Stoke last weekend, sends United into the break with one win in their last four league games. Mourinho at the final whistle. It could have been 6-0, but the result was 1-1. That's football. Yeah, but it wasn't 6-0. It was 1-1. And that's football, whose beauty lies in the fact that nothing is a gimme putt. I mean, just ask Lee Grant in goal, who's making his old Trafford debut on loan at Stoke from Derby. Eight magnificent saves, age 33. Still hope for all of us, Davo. Uh, to, yeah. me, to me, this game, I mean, fascinating. This is the stat where the English papers start to trot out the comparisons to LVG um, as they trotted out the comparisons between LVG and Moyes before him. Man U have won 13 points from their opening seven games this season. Three fewer than their total at this stage last season under Louis van Gaal. A bit of a butchered stat because LVG had inherited the team earlier. But the big question is, how much progress are you witnessing Mourinho make at United? Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a very, very good question. 
you know, I've seen Man United play some very good football this season. I've seen them play some football that is highly reminiscent of the football played under David Moyes and under Louis van Gaal. You look at the strength of this squad, though, and you look at the strength of these players, and you cannot believe that they're not going to find a way uh, to, uh, to sort of turn it on. I know what, what Man United fans are feeling. It's the same as I think that I've felt at Chelsea for a couple of seasons, is that every team seems to find a way to play a bit harder against your squad. Every team seems to find a way uh, to put the ball in the back of the net when you just like least expect it. Um, and uh, it's definitely tough days for Man United, but you sort of feel if they can just get Pogba ticking, if they can get Zlatan super interested, and if uh, young Marcus Rashford continues to emerge as the talent uh, that everyone in England is so excited about, uh, you feel like Man United are going to be okay. I mean, they still are a team in bits, David. We thought September 10th, when they lost the derby, we thought that was actually a high point where the team was showing signs they were gelling. I mean, they have slid backwards since then. Zlatan does seem to be playing a completely different game to those around him, where everything is actually graded on style points as opposed to just playing football, which is good and bad because he's so intelligent. He's so gifted. Yeah, I just don't think everything you do on the football field needs to be done with an exclamation point. Watching him play, it's like watching him audition to take Judd Nelson's role in a Breakfast Club reboot. (laughs) And Pogba, I mean, he is perpetually playing the crossbar challenge. Uh, and those United fans who are beginning to question what he does on the pitch, I'll just say what he does on the pitch is deliver millions of Twitter followers to Manchester United's official club account. But God, we've got to talk about poor Wayne, Davey. Poor Wayne Rooney coming on as a late substitute, which, I mean, to me, it left the same taste in my mouth that I, I experienced when I watched Ian Zeering starring Sharknado. Yeah, I mean, look, this one, we can't really blame this result ultimately on Wayne Rooney, but this isn't really about the team result. It's about the figure that he's cutting uh, right now. You know, it does seem that the pressure, that the, um, that the sort of media obsession with his new role, both for England and Man United, is getting to him, that he's feeling it very, very hard. And uh, I actually feel bad for him right now, Rog. I really feel bad for him. Yeah, I mean, for the second game on the run, Paul Wayne trotted onto the field, completely miscontrolled the ball. In this game, it bounced off his foot and Jeff Cameron and landed right in front of Tony Martial, who finished instinctively. Rooney ran over to him as if he meant to miscontrol the ball, celebrated, we did it, we did it. I mean, United, to me, they just need to get the ball at Rooney's feet in the box because just no, no, no man in football is better at miscontrolling or scuffing the ball into unintentional assists. I think they need to develop a whole new statistical category. Get on it, Togger. The mistake assist or something. Mistake assist. Whatever it is, Devo. Yeah. He's become less a footballer, more like a lucky coin or a rabbit's foot that you just bring on, rub his little bald head, and good crap just happens around him. That Q&A, we, we both talked about it together when it came out, the one before the England game. It was just heartbreaking. Yeah, an amazing, uh, long, long-ranging interview with Wayne Rooney in the Independent, I think, uh, Rog. Uh, you'll find it if you search for it on Google. And just, uh, you know, Wayne definitely feeling somewhat misunderstood, definitely unhappy. You know, a lot of the players are unloading on Sam Allardyce now that he's gone, but very unhappy with Sam Allardyce's, you know, characterization of him after England's last game, saying that uh, Rooney... Uh, is a player that you can't possibly tell what position uh, to play in, that he's going to play wherever he wants. He just felt that that wasn't true, it wasn't just, and it just got him hammered uh, by the media. Uh, There's a quote in that interview that every time I read it, it just breaks my heart. He says, I'll fight. I won't not fight for me place. I won't not fight for my place. I mean, how it has been reduced to that for poor Wayne, the nation's hero. I won't not fight for my place. It is absolutely heartbreaking. But most crucially, and I want to get your yeah. read on this because you are a Kremlinologist on Jose Mourinho. But to me, oh. most tellingly of all about United is how ill at ease he looks on the sideline. He doesn't look like a man in complete control. And that Mourinho that's not in complete control, it's like a wounded animal, Davo. It's not a Mourinho that tends to build. It's a Mourinho that can only destroy yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about that when I was watching him on the sideline, Roger. He does look a lot like 15-16 Mourinho, who was a very, very uncomfortable Jose Mourinho on the sideline. Very reminiscent of 
the way he appeared on the sidelines. However, that was also very reminiscent of 14-15 title-winning <laughs> Mourinho, who had some of his biggest hitty bits in the dugout during the 14-15 season when Chelsea actually won it. So it's tough to know. I think as he has aged, he is prone to a little bit more tetchiness on the sideline, a little bit more disquiet, a little bit more discomfort. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. Aren't we all, Davey? Aren't we all? A very, very different manager in the technical area. Jurgen Klopp, Rod, his side, enjoying the international break, just two points off the pace after coming from behind to earn a 2-1 win at Swansea last weekend. They sit four level on points with Arsenal. If I was a Liverpool fan, Dave, I would love, love, love this team. Firmino, Coutinho, Mane in goal. Loris Karius, 23. The dashing German who looks like the footballing equivalent of Sir Loris Tyrell, the Knight of Flowers. It is a team built on industry, collective will, and the tenacity that Arsene Wenger always goes on about. Yeah, and James Milner, Rog. Best left back in the game, mate. He's not boring anymore. Well, OK, he's a little boring, but he's, my God, he covers a lot of ground. Well, they needed him, Dave, because against Swansea in this game, a Swansea fighting in vain to save their manager's job. Liverpool really struggled for 45 minutes. Leroy Fur opened the scoring. Adam Lallana forced off early with a groin injury. But Liverpool, fascinating this season. They can't keep a clean sheet, but they can and they do fight back. And it was the twosome Firmino who made things level and a heartbreaking James Milner penalty, which made him Liverpool's top scorer this season. Astonishing. Heartbreaking for Swansea. Cruelest day for Swans since Bjork's Oscar dress. And, and, and look, I, I did love Kaplan and Levine in their box. Every time they, uh, the cameras went on them, their faces, they just looked completely confused at what they were watching. It's like they, they thought they'd actually acquired rights when they brought Swansea to buy some swans and all of the seas uh, in, in the world. They have a huge task on their hands, which we have dealt with at the top of the pod but for Liverpool Davo amazing statistic since Jurgen Klopp's arrival which is almost exactly a year to this day this weekend his team have won five games after trailing only Spurs have achieved that many uh, in that span I, I mean how do they do it yeah I mean I believe Rod and incidentally I like that Bjork uh, swan dress. I thought that was magnificent. Uh, but I do believe in Liverpool, uh, Rog, and it's just, for me, this is why the Premier League is so fascinating this season. There are so many good teams at the top playing such attractive football under such dynamic, but all very, very different uh, managers. I don't know how they keep this energy up, and it's got to be, it's almost like some form of religious cult uh, that they are, they're playing for their manager, they're playing for each other, they're playing this hard-pressing style, amazing stuff. Yeah, it's funny you say you don't know how they do it. It's like some religious cult because while I've been trying to think about how Jurgen Klopp makes his team run and run, at the same time, there's been news story after news story emerging from German historians' recent discovery that Hitler's army, their blitzkrieg, was achieved by their soldiers, their infantry, taking crystal meth in bulk, which would give them energy for up to 50 hours. And when I watch Liverpool... For whatever reason, and I'm not casting aspersions, I just can't stop thinking about that story. But I do, I think Klopp is a remarkable human being. I just love how he masks his true skills as a leader and a sophisticated change agent with the kind of big bear antics that he pulls routinely on the sideline. You know, he looks at like the kind of guy that's always trying to get you to pull his finger. But the honest truth is he's a very sophisticated, very nimble, very astute man manager. October the 8th, is his year in charge at Liverpool. And I, I did, I loved this quote because he's being pressed to like say things about transforming the club, the whole new atmosphere, whole new everything. And he said, I have no time. I'm not in the mood for reflection, to be honest. It's a year. I'm a year older, but everything else is good. It's not perfect, but in a good way. No, what an amazing, amazing character he is and perfect for the city of Liverpool, Rog. Talking about amazing okay. characters... Yeah, Rog, Leicester, it turns out that the hangover from the Foxes' title-winning season <laughs> lasts even longer when you're sipping port, Rog, from a Lucasade bottle. Claudio Ranieri's side at 12th, Rog, after a nil-nil draw with Southampton on the weekend. And while the football's been dull, 
Jamie Vardy's upcoming biography is anything but. Tell me about it, David, because when I think Jamie Vardy's autobiography, I think of him at home with, like, a pen in his mouth just doing drawings. <laughs> yeah, a quill. <laughs> a quill, Rog. You don't think of him sipping port, Rog. Uh, OK, Jamie Vardy's revealed that he drinks port, Rog, uh, fortified Portuguese wine from a Lucasade, that's an English Gatorade uh, bottle, Rog, before every Leicester game, along with polishing off three Red Bulls before kickoff. He probably gets those from Christian Fuchs. In his upcoming autobiography, Jamie Vardy, From Nowhere, My Story, serialised by The Sun. <laughs> Vardy writes, I can't say why it started, because I genuinely don't know, but I decided to drink a glass of port on the eve of every game in the 2015-16 <laughs> season. I'm not normally superstitious, but from the moment I scored against Sunderland on the opening day, I didn't want to change anything. I fill a small plastic water bottle or Lucozade bottle to halfway and just sit the port while watching television. It tastes sweet to me, and it helps me switch off and get to sleep a bit easier the night before a game. Vardy sees off any potential hangover the next day with three cans of Red Bull and a double espresso. The Foxes strikers' methods haven't been quite as effective this season, scoring just twice in the league. Oh, I think Michael Jackson used to call that Jesus juice. That guy. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he also let loose in his book. He said that he had the dead leg in 2012 and it took him longer to recover it than it should have done because he uh, developed an incredible taste for Skittles vodka. <laughs> I didn't even know there was Skittles vodka. i got to say, autobiographies, David, they are fascinating to me. It's like, you can't write an autobiography anymore without having a crazy, crazy revelation in it that you kind of tease out to the media before release. See Abby Wombach's Addiction Tell All or Carly Lloyd breaking the news that I don't talk to my dad. And the one I love most of all, and literally thousands of GFOPs have sent it to us. Big news while you've been away, Dave. Joe Buck's autobiography is coming out. And he announced that in 2011, he had a paralyzed left vocal cord, which at the time was said to be from a virus. But it turns out, and I think it was Richard Deitch that broke this news, it was an addiction to hair plugs. This is the central big reveal of his autobiography. He's had eight hair plugs, Dave which was to blame, he said, Broadcasting is a brutal, often unfair business where looks are valued more than skill. No one's told us that, Davo. I was worried <laughs> that if I lost my hair, <laughs> I'd lose my job. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's partly because we don't have our job based on either looks or skill. Or hair. So it's very easy. We got none. We don't have looks. We don't have skill. We don't have any hair. I've got to say, I, I read this Joe Buck thing. I think it's astonishing. It's like a whole new sympathy pity category has been opened up to me that I'm now going to, you know, be on the lookout for. I'm not going to judge people anymore, Davo. When you see a man acting slightly maniacally, let's say Antonio Conte, Davo, maybe it's not his tactics that are a problem or his lack of a reliable centre-back. Maybe he's just in the grip of a cruel uh, 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 and brutal hair transplant addiction. Yeah, it could easily... It could easily be Rog. A man who I don't think is suffering from any hair transplant addiction, Rog, Slavin Bilic. He may be spending the break petitioning the league to count each Dimitri Payet wonder goal as two. Another surreal goal from the Frenchman this weekend. Still, the Hammers could only manage a point off Middlesbrough. West Ham have just four points this season. They sit in 18th place. Can't stop thinking about hair transplant addiction, Davo. I know you always want us to do a charity record, charity single. Maybe we should yeah. re-release re Robert Palmer and do a version uh, addicted to hair transplants. Man, <laughs> yeah, exactly. as well, face it, you're addicted to hair transplants. What a goal, though. Oh, my Lord. At the ever-fractious, never-definite article London Stadium. Dimitri yeah. Payet, the length of the half. Beating six Middlesbrough defenders. Yes, three of them may have been a little half-hearted in their attempts to dispossess him. But he tied the game when all seemed dark for West Ham. Huge, huge problems all over the field for Bilic. Great tweet from at NetProv. Uh, Rob Witt, who tweeted us, Michael Jordan only had to carry four men on his shoulders. Dimitri Payet has to carry ten. What's going on at West Ham? A mess, Rog. What's going on at that stadium? An absolute mess. Ugly, ugly scenes. Again, at... The London Stadium, a London Stadium, and London Stadium. Nobody knows what it is, Rog. Nobody knows how to describe that place. The big news, though, Rog, every taxi driver in London talking about it. 
67 days, one win, and who knows how many pies. Sam Allardyce's reign as England manager came to an end last week after the Daily Telegraph, my favourite newspaper, posted video of the former Sunderland, West Ham, Blackburn, Newcastle, Bolton, a bunch of other teams' manager, telling reporters posing as businessmen how to bypass rules on third-party player ownership, amongst other offences. Poor Sam. I do wonder what is going on in his mind right now as he's the king in exile. He must be so confused. He had it all one minute. It has all gone, just like life, Davo. It's all gone in a heartbeat. I do wonder what is going on in his head as rumours of Big Sam to MLS ruminate uh, in the media over here. Should he have been bin, David? Well, look, I mean, who knows? Ultimately, I think the FA were in a position where they, there was no right decision for them. I think the bigger question is, this form of journalism, this sort of gotcha journalism. You know, if we had this kind of journalism, this kind of sports journalism in America, I think Jason Gatry did this, there wouldn't be a single college basketball or college football coach across the NCAA. Um, it is very particular, very peculiar to the British press. And I think it's, yes, I think it's a little unfair. I don't feel completely comfortable about the way he was framed. But ultimately, in the wake of this, I think it's just all about whether or not it's right for the English national team, all the money they make, all of the programs, all of their responsibilities across the sort of the fair play and the grassroots running of English football. A man who is this tarnished, I don't think there was any way for him to continue leading the organisation. Yeah, I mean, on perception alone, insinuating that he could explain to his hosts how to get around the third party ownership rules created by his own bosses. The optics were terrible, and as soon as the story broke, uh, I think we both knew he was gone. He came across as foolish, greedy, a man of ill judgment, um, and the news was fatal as soon as it was released. At Devil Dan 09 cried out that Sam be allowed to carry on his tenure. He said, isn't being manager of England punishment enough? But so he leaves, Dave, out to me, a new low <laughs> for English folly. I mean, Big Sam, two great achievements in his precious 67 days, being 1-0 up for the last 40 seconds of an away qualifying win in Slovakia. But as I prefer to remember, the news that came out after he was let go, that he'd renamed the Wi-Fi connection in his official England headquarters, Big Sam's office, (laughs) during his short reign. I love that. Just popping up. Which Wi-Fi should we connect to? Oh, he should connect to Big Sam's office. What's the password? Pies. (laughs) I love the revelations that he'd run a quiz night with the England team. And the England squad had got really upset about it because they felt that he was intentionally trying to make them look stupid by asking them questions that they didn't know the answer to, which is probably any question that they didn't know the answer to. But I just love the idea of Big Sam's quiz night going down a stinker with the England squad. (laughs) What kind of questions do you think they were asking, David? Two plus two? I don't know. It's just a, uh, he felt like they were aged out. They're probably about sort of Chumbawamba and uh, and sort of like big hits of the 1980s and early 1990s. The, the players are way too young to know the answer to. <sighs> I've got to say, something that might numb his pain is the incredible amount of money he's getting in severance. I think the Guardian calculated uh, that all of the money that the FA threw at Sam Allardyce and Sunderland in compensation when he first became manager... Uh, comes to $4.5 million or nearly $67,000 a day, which is great work if you can get it. I did love the kicker that on the day he was released, England players received a postcard written by Big Sam, um, which declared that, can you imagine being the postman delivering this postcard to the English players? A handwritten postcard which just declared, our journey has just begun. That might be the most English football thing of all time, Dave. Who would you like to replace him on the journey, which has just begun? Well, right now, Gareth Southgate's in the job, and it seems as though it's Gareth Southgate's uh, job to lose. Uh, Gareth Southgate, a, you know, a very smart, really kind of intelligent, almost a breath of fresh air uh, in football. I'd like to see Southgate succeed over the next few games. I'd like to see him get the job, but I have a feeling this very sensitive, very middle-class, very erudite young man is going to get ripped apart by the British press. A, a very 
a very feisty qualifier against Scotland, Rog, looms on the horizon. And I think the way that this team performs against Scotland is going to decide his fate. He's taken himself out the running. I think Eddie Howe would be a breath of fresh air. Arsene Wenger would be fascinating uh, if Arsenal do hint that he should be looking uh, towards the exit. But my man for the job, Davo, and I mean this in all sincerity, Bruce Arena, American managers. <laughs> They're so hot right now. Yeah, Bob Bradley better win 8-0 at the Emirates, <laughs> Rod, uh, for that to even become a, uh, any kind of possibility. OK, Rod, talking to Bruce Arena over to the U.S. men's national team. We're just hours away from the USA kicking off against Cuba in Havana, an international friendly. It should be relatively easy not to read too much into. Jurgen Klinsmann and company return to the U.S. to play New Zealand in D.C. on Tuesday. Yep, November the 11th against Mexico and the Hex loom large. These, to me, David, just seem like a pair of games against modest opposition uh, to get the confidence up, which is very unyurgen. He normally likes to prepare with real challenges, but perhaps he's realised that victory and momentum and confidence are more important than exposure to elite teams right at this juncture. What's interesting about these games, young goalkeeping trio, uh, Ethan Horvath of Mould, Club Leon's William Yarber, uh, the Earthquakes' David Bingham, and, and we'll find out, only time will tell if they're fighting for the third string slot or if they're fighting to be replacements sooner rather than later for Tim Howard and Brad Guzan. One thing that's clear uh, is that we need this goalkeeper quarterback controversy thing to end and end soon. Among the people that return, Julian Green, Timmy Chandler, interesting, but God love him. Lyndon Gooch of Sunderland gains a well-deserved call-up watching him play with Pulisic, please God, and Jordan Morris, who's back. Three boy wonders. Perhaps we'll get a glimpse of the future, which is now. Today's game is on ESPN2 at 4pm Eastern Time. we better get this pot out quickly. Tuesday is at 8pm Eastern Time on ESPN. News out of CONCACAF that I did like. Um, they've announced that CONCACAF is considering changing its name to create a new brand <laughs> image and distance itself from the toxic past. We're going to go through an exhaustive process, said new president Victor Monteliani, in terms of both brand and logo, because there's obviously some toxic waste in there. What should they call it, David? What should the new name for CONCACAF be? Spectre? The Mob? The Gerhardt crime family? <laughs> I don't know. Wendy's. Everybody likes Wendy's, Rod. That who, would be pretty good. Who couldn't be for Wendy's? We've got a lot of, um, a lot of great... Uh, a lot of great suggestions. Kristaps Puddock said it should be rebranded as the Confederation of No Cat Apartments, Corruption and or Fraud, which is the positive spin uh -huh. on an old acronym. At that, Josh Kale suggested it should be called Red Bull CONCACAF. Everything should be called Red Bull something, Dave. Okay, your weekend looks like this, courtesy of Mini USA. Sunday, the NWFL final, Rod, GFOP, Ali Krieger's Washington Spirit take on league MVP slash golden boot winner slash and recent U.S. Women's National Team roster edition 23-year-old Lynn Williams and her Western New York Flash. The game is 5 p.m. Eastern time on Fox Sports 1. We interviewed both Ali and Lynn for a NWSL final preview. That's going out in our newsletter later today. Subscribe at meninblazers. Com. There are many other ways to connect to us. One is through our Amazon Emporium. It helps keep the show going. Anytime you go on Amazon, for items big or small, just click off the Emporium page. Men in Blazers gets a tiny percentage that allows us to cover the cost of creating the show. What are you putting in the Emporium this week, Roger? A book, Dave. Same book I always put in at this time of the year. Uh, the book I read on Yom Kippur, The Drowned and the Saved, by my favourite writer of all time, Primo Levy. Book's a collection of essays that he penned about his personal experience in Auschwitz. But it's really about experience and memory, how the stories we tell are told and by whom. There's one essay, The Grey Zone, is a heavy, hard read, but it is beautiful. It looks at how history reduces everything into good and evil, kind of white and black, instead of the reality where everything is just painted in shades of grey. It's the greatest single piece of writing that I've ever engaged with. I love reading it year after year. And I'll say everyone's guilty of simplifying the things that surround them. Yes, even me, Chelsea fans. So reading this essay every year, it's the best way that I've found of reflecting on my lesser tendencies. And I apologise to you, Davo, I'm going to change. <laughs> I'm putting in something very similar, Rog. It's the Kyoku for Men exfoliating facial scrub. 
the 3.4 fluid ounce bottle. Uh, our makeup uh, and hair person, our groomer, because believe it or not, we do have a groomer before we go on the air on the Men in Blazer show. Rebecca uh, made a note to me last time she saw me that I really, really need to start exfoliating. And I sort of shrugged it off. She said, no, Davo, you really, really need to start exfoliating. Uh, so I went out and got myself some Kyoku exfoliating facial scrub, a bargain at twelve ninety-nine. Rog, when you see me again, you're barely going to recognise me. My face, my face is so heavily exfoliated. I can't wait, Dave. I've just got to tell you though, just to be candid, exfoliating cream is a gateway drug to becoming a hair transplant <laughs> addict. <laughs> oh wow! Well, well, we will see. We'll see what happens next. Quick plug, Dave, for a Men in Blazers. Yeah. Pod special, which is debuting this week. Jack Harrison, remarkable gent, fantastic story. The young New York City FC boy wonder, once a Manchester United Academy prospect who ditched England to move to America because his mother, his wonderful mother, decided it was more important for him to have an education to fall back on if football didn't work out as a safety net. But he still fought his way into the professional game and, and how... I mean, he's like Santiago Munez in the goal movies, but in reverse. And that pod drops on, uh, on Wednesday. We will be back podding okay. next week on Thursday, our post Yom Kippur special with a review of the US games and a preview uh, of the weekend's football to come. And Men in Blazers TV show, warning, be careful, look at the children. We are back a week on Monday, October the 17th, right after Liverpool beat Manchester United at 5.30pm Eastern Time on NBCSN, so make sure you do not watch that television show. Fantastic stuff, Rog. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at Men in Blazers, at Embassy Davies, at Rog Bennett, on Instagram, at Men in Blazers, at Embassy underscore Davies, uh, on Facebook, at Men in Blazers. You can always send your ravens to the crap part of Soho. You can always email us at meninblazers at gmail.com. Vendorpunkt. War pig! Who wants to sex Mutombo? Explosion. Courage. Do it for Harvey. Is that your analysis? To Tweed. Abrogado, rock on, mate. Kung Fu Fight in America. Exfoliate well, Davo. I miss you. If you could just get me some information on the hair plugs, I'd appreciate it. Oh, and we love you, Bob Bradley. Come on, the swans! <laughs>